Into the positive vibe every Thursday. 90.3 FM. FM. I said after hours is right here, so they're going to take over. Don't turn off that dial. Continue. CKUT. Bless it. There, there, there is there is this thing do you realize what is what is what is what there is this thing do you realize consciousness is affected there, there, there is this there is this thing on there is this thing going on do you realize our consciousness is affected there is this thing going on what is called the news have brought to you live Listening to the Prison Radio Show, a part of CKUT's Off the Hour. Prison Radio has been on the air for more than 10 years. Prison Radio seeks to confront the invisibility of prisons and prisoner struggle by focusing on the roots of incarceration, policing, and criminalization, and by challenging our ideas about what are prisons and the people inside our jails. Prison Radio is dedicated to programming that is directly collaborative with people who are currently incarcerated. This is in the interest of forging stronger ties with incarcerated and non-incarcerated people, ensuring that prisoners have direct control over their representation and that our understanding of prisons be informed by those who live inside their walls. We invite anyone who is interested in collaborating on programming to contact us. Those who have been affected by the prison system in any way are encouraged to get involved. You can email news at cqt.ca or prison at cqt.ca or you can call us at 514-448-4041 extension 6788. You're listening to CQT Montreal Community Campus Radio located on 90.3 FM on the dial and www.cqt.ca online. There, there, there is there is this thing do you realize what is what is what is what there is this thing do you realize consciousness is affected there, there, there is this there is this thing on there is this thing going on do you realize our consciousness is affected there is this thing going on what is called the news have brought to you live
our data. When you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Especially in web and email services, where multinationals compete to manage your communication so they can make a profit off of the private communication you are producing. Kumbit is a worker cooperative trying to help small organizations or individuals get their email, website creation, and website hosting services off corporate services such as Google. For more information, contact us at kumbit.org or email at info at kumbit.org. That's K-O-U-M-B-I-T. We are not on Facebook. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show. My name is Eugene, and we're hosts for today's show. Yasmin is yet to come. Today is the Prison Radio Show's Prisoner Justice Day special. We'll be airing a special interview with Robert Gaucher, a retired criminology professor at University of Ottawa who spent time in prison in Saskatchewan in the late 60s. In the interview, Robert talks about his time inside in the 1960s more broadly in the context of the history of prisons in Canada. We will also have an interview with Yusuf Fakiri. More about the interview, but first, some news. Ahead of the 2018 National Prison Strike, slated for August 21st in the United States, the state of Ohio has launched a campaign of repression against prison rebels, including outspoken organizer Iman Siddiqui Abdullah Hassan. Iman Hassan was transferred to the hole on July 27th. He began a hunger strike the following morning, on July 28th, to protest a conduct report signed by Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction Bureau of Classification, which referred to the upcoming national prisoner strike. The report charges Iman Hassan with the following violation. Now, uh, rioting or causing others to riot. Uh, section 16, engaging in or encouraging a group demonstration or work stoppage. Section 46, conducting business operations with any person or entity outside the institution, whether or not for profit, with specific permission from the managing officer, and Section 56, use of telephone or mail in furtherance of any criminal activity. Iman Hassan told Lucasville Amnesty that most of his property had been confiscated. He has no pen, paper, envelopes, stamps, or legal work. A security barrier with sandbags has been placed outside his cell door, presumably to prevent anyone from passing him anything. This is now the second week of his hunger strike. Lucasville Amnesty is asking supporters to call the Ohio Department of Rehabilitations and Corrections Director Gary Moore at 614-752-1153 to demand that the charges against Iman Hassan be dropped, to reprint his property, and to reinstate his previously earned privileges. You can also mail letters to, of support to Siddiq Abdullah Hassan, Route 130559, 878 Coitsville-Hubart Road, Youngstown, Ohio, 44505. Again, in the lead up to the August 21st National Prison Strike in the United States, incarcerated people in Ohio have drafted a list of demands. Here are a few of the demands. One, abolish forced prison uh, labor or prison slavery. Prisoners should have the right to refuse work, to choose jobs, and to negotiate wages without fear of punishment. Blatant economic exploitation of prisoners' labor is at the heart of mass incarceration and is reflected in monthly salaries of $16 to $24 per month. 
Two, prisoners should be given no less than minimum wage for their labor. Three, all prisoners should be afforded the same benefits and protections as traditional workers. Healthcare is not a privilege for a few workers, but a right for everybody. Incarcerated people in Ohio are demanding that all working citizens in Ohio have their minimum wages raised to $15 an hour. Improving wages and... Sorry, are you getting there? And working people's lives on the outside is interconnected with prisoner struggle because of such improvements will protect many people from either entering or re-entering the prison system. All citizens confined on Ohio's prisons and jails should be allowed their right to vote. Only Maine and Vermont are adhering to the U.S. Constitution by allowing their prisoners to vote. According to the sentencing project, an estimated 5.3 million U.S. citizens cannot vote because they have a criminal conviction. 80% of these people are already out of prison and are living and working in their communities. There will be a ride for reform event on August 10th, tomorrow, Prisoner's Justice Day, in Hamilton, Ontario this year. A dozen cyclists will ride over 80 kilometers from Hamilton's Barton Jail to Queen's Park in downtown Toronto to deliver a letter to Ontario Premier Doug Ford. The letter is demanding policy change to decrease homelessness among former prisoners once people are released from jail. Specifically, Ride for Reform is making the following three demands. Demand number one. Mandate the Minister of Community and Social Services to continue paying the shelter allowance of welfare and disability recipients during periods of provincial incarceration for all inmates on remand and custody and for sentence offenders serving up to a year, directly to landlords in order that inmates and their families can maintain their housing while incarcerated. Demand number two. Mandate that Minister of Community and Social Services develop and fund a rent bank, perhaps drawing from the interest-free loan model operated by the Toronto Neighborhood Information Post, to sustain tenancies and prevent evictions, which would be dedicated to helping provincial prisoners maintain their current housing. This is a repeated request following a recommendation from the John Howard Society of Toronto's 2010 report, Homeless and Jailed, Jailed and Homeless. Demand number three, provide additional dedicated funding through the Minister of Community and Social Services towards discharge planning for prisoners upon their admission and transitional and supportive housing for reintegrating inmates. Ride for Reform reminds us that stable housing contributes significantly to reducing recidivism among ex-offenders. The group says it's both cheaper and more humane to prevent loss of housing for incarcerated people than to pursue new housing options for them upon release. The letter will be delivered tomorrow, Prisoner's Justice Day, to the Ontario Premier. In Kingston, Ontario, on Friday, August 10th, CFRC 101.9 FM presents its 10th annual broadcast for Prisoner's Justice Day. Remembering all those who have died behind bars. 2018 marks the 44th annual Prisoner's Justice Day, which began in commemoration of Eddie Nolan, a prisoner who bled to death in the segregation unit of Millhaven Prison on August 10, 1974. More than four decades later, upward of 200 prisoners die in custody each year in Canada alone. From 4 to 7 p.m. on August 10th, CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston will air interviews, news, features, and memorials about prisoners and prison conditions. From 7 to 10 p.m., tune in for messages and music requests by and for prisoners and their loved ones and supporters. Earlier that day, there will also be a vigil at St. Mary's Cemetery at noon and a healing circle at the Prison for Women site at 1 p.m. The broadcast will be streamed online at cfrc.ca. The time is presently 5.14 p.m. and you're listening to The Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable and www.ckut.ca. 
Up first, we have an interview with Bob Gaucher, Robert Gaucher, actually, a retired criminology professor at the University of Ottawa who also spent time in prison in Saskatchewan in the 1960s. In the first part of this interview, Robert talks about the time he spent in Saskatchewan Penitentiary as a teenager in the 1960s. He talks about the history of Canadian prisons starting in the 1920s and shares the story of Canadian communist Tim Buck, who spent time in prison in the 1930s. He ends by talking about the penal reform era of the 1940s through the 1960s. Uh, my name is Robert Gaucher, but uh, I grew up out west, so everybody knows me as Bob Gaucher. Uh, I uh, uh, taught criminology at the University of Ottawa for almost 30 years. Prior to that, I was involved with uh, uh, many prison rights initiatives uh, going back to the early 1960s. Do you want to talk a bit about how you initially got involved in prisoner rights initiatives in the 60s? When I was 16, uh, I was sentenced to a year in jail, and uh, I did it in an adult provincial prison. When I was 17, almost 18, I got a two-year sentence, and I was sentenced to penitentiary. And that was a real eye-opener, being 17 years old, uh, going into a maximum security penitentiary, a SAS pen, is a... Uh, bit of a daunting experience. <clears throat> this was the age of penal reform. They were still going back and forth about whether or not they were actually going to try anything that uh, seemed to be quotation marks rehabilitative or if, whether or not it was just going to be the same old, same old. Uh, I had a, a quite a time in the two years I was there. There were a lot of prison disturbances during the time. I ended up spending the last six months in segregation in the hole. And back then it was bread and water, like a board on a, on a slab of cement uh, in a cell with a hole in the floor. Um, every 15 days at max, they had to take you out and give you three full meals for three days. So I went back and forth between the hole and there was a seg unit on the other side of the, the hole in PA. SAS pen. When I say PA, I'm Saskatchewan Penitentiary I'm talking to. Um, so I was released from the hole. I was pretty angry and not in great shape either. Uh, six months in isolation. I was talking to myself and things like that. Anyway, as I say, I was pretty angry and uh, I didn't get very much help when I got, got out. Um, I thought you. It was humiliating the, the John Howard Society and groups like this. I uh, really didn't provide anything. I needed work clothes, you know, boots. I had nothing. Like, uh, they sent me to, like, a, a Salvation Army used clothing thing and stuff like that. I just found it really humiliating, and uh, I was not in great spirits uh, after my experience. So one thing led to another and I went back into the group in the neighborhood. And about a year later I got charged with uh, uh, bank robbery and I got a 10-year sentence. Um, it was during that 10-year sentence and all the violence that was going on. PA was a pretty violent place. Um, prisoner on prison violence, a lot of it. And uh, I decided, no, no, I'm not spending my life here. I had a friend who had got out, he'd 
just done 12 years, and he did most of it. He did eight on it or nine, and he was out like a month, and he got arrested for bank robbery and got another 12 years. And I remember sitting to myself thinking, I'm not spending my life in here. And uh, so what could I do about it? So I had to, to uh, finish a couple of courses for high school, though I did had finished most of my grade 12. Um, and then just through a fluke, uh, there was a, a young guy that uh, came in to work as a classification officer one summer. And we had a, we had a, a Toastmasters International speaking group in PA that I was the educational chairman for. And we always had, because we had outside guests, we always had to have somebody from the administration uh, sit into the meetings. And generally it was somebody from the classification department, not a screw. And uh, so this young guy sat in and I got to know him and he knew I was interested in school and he was from Kingston. When he got home, he, I got a letter from him saying, did I know that you can take correspondence courses from Queen's University? And uh, so he sent me, we corresponded, he sent me all the application forms and I applied and I was accepted and they let me take two courses. And I did quite well on those, and then the next year they let me take three, and I passed all those. And the change, I guess, in my behavior uh, inside uh, seemed really noticeable to the authorities, and uh, that kind of coupled with uh, Trudeau had just really come into government. His idea for the just society and all his pronouncements there. If you look at parole statistics you'll find there's a real increase in uh, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And it lasts for about two or three years where the parole rates really go up and then they go down again. And so I, I was lucky I got into that burst. Uh, taking courses from Queens, quite a few other guys in the, uh, in the joint also started to take courses. In the end, there was like five of us that uh, were at Queens. Um, uh, doing various things. I have one friend that was into computers. I was in nineteen like seventy. Like I wonder, wow, where 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 did he go and what did he do? Because he was really into it uh, back then. Uh, and you know, one thing led to another. Um, I I I think what you want to talk about really in many ways when you talk about the sixties. Sixties were a was a funny era in, in Canadian penal history. By 1960, the reform, the penal reform movement, uh, uh, had really started to peter out, and there were real problems with it. Maybe to, what I really need to do is to go back and give you a little basis of the history of that. I think I don't think you can understand it clearly without it. There were major riots in the 1920s and 1930s in Canadian penitentiaries, and it uh, produced the bigger report in uh, 1921, I think. But then there was a, 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 a major disturbance at uh, Kingston Penitentiary in the mid-1930s. And Tim Buck and a number of others that were members of the Communist Party, the Communist Party had been outlawed, and members of it were incarcerated. And I think they were all doing five years for being uh, members of a legal organization. The idea of the, behind the legislation was that uh, they, they were... Uh, promoting violent overthrow, 
and anybody promoting violence in politics. So this was an excuse anyway. But the thing was, was Tim Buck and this group were really tied into uh, trade unions in, in labor council in, in Toronto, uh, specifically. And so they had a lot of support, and there were a lot of outside agitation around their arrest and around their incarceration. So Buck was involved. There's a, uh, I really recommend it. There's a, a Years in the Struggle, which is a biography of Tim Buck, that is uh, uh, really useful. It gives you a lot of information on the, his experience, uh, uh, carceral experience, but also in the criminalization of politics in this country in the 1930s. Uh, so uh, Buck being in, the, in, in KP at the time of these disturbances, and the military took over. They were shooting into people's cells. There was a, the, the rumor was they tried to assassinate Tim Buck. So this led to... Well, as I said, because of the uh, support out of uh, uh, labor unions and the Trade Council in Toronto, uh, it led to a fair amount of publicity. And there was a fellow named Winthrop who uh, uh, wrote a memoir that was published around the same time. Uh, Winthrop had, was a doctor who was uh, doing abortions, which were illegal, and uh, a woman died. Uh, he was found guilty of, of being involved, and uh, he was sentenced to three years, I believe, in KP. And so when he was there, he was very well-educated, very articulate, uh, literate. Uh, he wrote a book when he got out, and uh, uh, it came out around the, the, the same time, and it had great impact. Uh, Globe and Mail like presented large excerpts from it, and so there was quite a bit of public agitation. And you've got to remember the 1930s, the Great Depression. There was a lot more gra grassroots uh, agitation going on. There was a, a much a stronger sense of community uh, of the left of, uh, uh, against state repression, against authoritarianism. So this had quite an impact in terms of Canadian society. And finally, the government, uh, there had been Bennett, the uh, uh, Tories, had been in control with Bennett, a prime minister at the beginning of the 30s, and he screwed up the, uh, or they screwed up the economic situation for most people uh, to such an extent that they were thrown out the next election and a, a liberal government came in who were more open to uh, uh, these arguments from the Labour Council and the like. And uh, so uh, they uh, created the Archambault Report, or the Archambault Commission, uh, which was an investigation into the situation in Canadian penitentiaries. There were nine at the time uh, across the country. And um, the Archambault Report became a blueprint for penal reform in Canada, where they argued that uh, they really referred to it as the New Deal, as Roosevelt had in the, in the U.S. for the broader economic situation. And I, I guess the mantra of it all was that... Uh, Prisoners are people. And so there was this argument that they had to liberalize uh, uh, penal regimes and uh, uh, penal control to some extent. We still have the silent system, the, the regular beatings, like the, the amount of the, the use of the paddle, the use of physical, physical uh, uh, punishments, uh, the whole bread and water diets was really rampant across the system. So... The Second World War really put off 
the changes, though they did start to to occur. There were a lot less guards during the war uh, because of the military call-up and the like, and uh, a lot less prisoners coming in. Uh, so they kind of loosened it up. The silent system in many places was falling apart. They already started to loosen things a little bit. So it was after the war, uh, they established a commission or a commissioner's office, a guy named Gibson, who was a retired uh, military officer, uh, was the first commissioner. And they started a program of, of penal reform. It went in fits and starts uh, from the late 40s uh, uh, through to the 1960s. And certainly there were, there were real improvements in terms of recreation possibilities, of out of just being out of your cell, of, uh, they tried to put in vocational training and, and uh, educational opportunities, but in a really half-hearted way. Uh, and in, in most institutions, it really was barely, uh, barely possible. So by 1960, this initiative started to peter out. And if you look at the penal press, what prisoners are calling for at the time, is for them to fulfill the promises they made, like to, to go full tilt with it. Are we doing this penal reform? Are we trying to do rehabilitation or not? And uh, uh, there was a, a within the, the, the staff of the penitentiaries themselves, there was a, a lot of uh, digging your heels in and not wanting to go along with it. One of the arguments that uh, uh, the commissioners made, and Archambault and the like, was the lack of, of, of trained personnel working within penitentiaries. I mean, who wanted to be a, a prison guard? The pay was shit, you'd be treated like dirt by the senior people, and screamed out by convicts, like, who wants to be a prison guard? It's one of the reasons that a lot of the penitentiaries were out-of-way places, and you see later, they actually built places, prisons in places like Drumheller and uh, Alberta and Springfield, Nova Scotia, to give an economic boost to areas. It's one of the places they could actually get people to work. So the 1960s were this middle ground where headquarters had wanted to keep going, prison staff were digging their heels in, and prisoners themselves were saying, hold on, you promised us this, none of it is happening. And so there started to be more disturbances, more, not a huge kinds of riotous situations that had occurred in the in the 50s, but uh, also primarily in the uh, in the 30s, but disturbances nonetheless. So when I when I went into PA, you had these two things going on. I remember like that's major resistance, like uh, uh, and pushing other people to you know stand up and and uh, not take it. Uh, we had work stoppages. We refused. I, I, they put me in the, uh, the masons, and uh, guys were destroying the machinery that made bricks. Like, I don't think that machine ever worked for more than two days running before somebody cut all the wires. And, and, and that was happening in all the shops. Um, so there were a lot of these just everyday resistance activities uh, going on. And, you know, when I think back on it, I think you have to understand it was the 1960s. And what was going on outside affected what went on inside. And in many ways, we were the same people. One of the things that, you know, when I look back, was really 
quite surprising, or not, I'm not sure, uh, was how young we all were. And a lot of the people raised in hell in South Penn, we were all like teenagers or, or early 20s. And so I think we were all influenced by what went outside. That was part one of an interview with Robert Gaucher, a retired criminology professor at the University of uh, the University of Ottawa, who also spent time in prison in Saskatchewan in the 1960s. In this next segment of the interview, Robert talks about Prison Justice Day, which is tomorrow. He talks about the Odyssey Group, a prisoner's right group, group that operated out of Millhaven Prison outside of Kingston, Ontario. Robert also talks about Claire Colhane, an outside organizer and tireless supporter of resistance in prison. So the, the 70s became a major era of, of disturbances and prisoner resistance. As I said, you've got to understand it as instigated by guards, that the, the guards' attitudes and their contestation of headquarters control and rehabilitation program, they were really against it. And they, they the union put the worst of the worst in terms of the guards, I like to use that formulation, uh, uh, in control of the union control of what went on in institutions. I used to have a guy that had been a guard at Millhaven come in and talk to my classes. He got squeezed out. They slashed his tires, things like this. He talked about being a guard at Millhaven and the, ex the excruciating nature of it if you were a guard. They ran the, the guy who was the, the warden. They ran his car off the road one night. So Millhaven exploded. And I think the really important thing in terms of resistance, what I'd like to talk about, and it it worries me that it, it seems not to be there to the extent it once was, is Prison Justice Day. Guys in, the, in Mill Havens, Howie Brown uh, being a principal, started the uh, group called the Odyssey. And they were really about prisoners' rights. And they were a prisoners' rights group. And they brought in, there were 15 members of the group. The group voted on who was members, who got to be members. They could bring in 15 outsiders. So outsiders did come in. The Ottawa Civil Liberties Group, Liz Elliott and uh, Ray Sundstrom, uh, the principals, uh, they were major supporters. So Melhaven, uh, the Odyssey Group, a guy named Eddie Nalen, you probably know all this, Eddie Nalen uh, uh, committed suicide in the hole on August 10th, 1974. following year, uh, Bobby Landers, and I did time with both Bobby and Glenn Landers at PA. They were, like I said, uh, be, before, there were a crew of us, really young. I counted like 77 guys from my neighborhood, prison, like in Edmonton, was where I'd been living at the time, of all my troubles. So in in Millhaven, uh, Bobby Landers died of a heart attack in the hole. He'd been, he'd, there in the special hunting unit, he'd been uh, uh, transferred in about three weeks before. Uh, I don't know from where. So they started on... August the 10th, 1975, they had a day of fasting, a hunger strike, day of long work to memorialize the death of Eddie Nalen. And it really led to the creation of Prison Justice Day. And one of the things, if you, you, you're, you know, you're talking about prisoners' resistance, and I, I think this was really important. What we did from the 1960s to the 70s was we had access to outside visitors. And we always tried to bring in, uh, uh, you know, people from the universities, people from newspapers, people that had some kind of influence in the community. And so that's pretty much what Odyssey did. It reached out. And if you look at the penal press, if you look at a lot of prisoners' resistance, what they try to do 
it's really central, is to talk to the outside public. You know, there's this, I think, false belief myself, illusion, uh, that if outside, if people knew what was going on inside, they'd stop it. I'm not sure that's the case, but prisoners do have that optimism, you know. They can't believe what goes on around them, and and uh, if they, they figure if, you know, that solid square John out there knew, uh, uh, they'd be against it, that they would do something about it. So the Odyssey group really reached out to the broader community and brought in people like Claire Culhane. I do want to talk a little bit about Claire Culhane. So Prison Justice Day started within a year, Prison for Women, P4W, uh, by 1976. They claimed 98% of the women in P4W supported the day, the Memorial Day, a day of, of not eating, hunger. It was a, a, a wide complement of outside support. Uh, Prisoners' Rights Committee of Montreal, uh, uh, ODD, uh, the Quebec Human Rights League, uh, uh, all in 1976 started demonstrations and, and uh, support. I believe the ODD actually all didn't eat that day as well. They, they engaged in the same kind of activities. Marie Beemans, I think, was one of the, the people involved there. I don't remember everybody's names, but I knew them all. The Quebec Human Rights League provided support. Uh, in uh, Vancouver, uh, the wondrous Claire Culhane and her prisoners' rights group started to do demonstrations outside of Ocala. Claire's a major feminist, so she was really concerned about women's imprisonment in Ocala. And she started major actions around Prison Justice Day in Vancouver. In my lifetime, and I've been active since I was a boy, Claire is the social justice activist that I've ever met. I, her level of dedication, her involvement over the years, the things that she was involved in starting. You know, she tried to go to uh, Spain in the 1930s. She was like 17 years old, 18 years old. They told her, hey, girl, like, uh, you're too much of a kid. So she helped or organize uh, uh, fundraising for a Norman Bethune tour that, that came through. Claire was from Montreal. Uh, so Claire, maybe more than anybody, uh, influence on the spread of prison, of prison Justice Day, both inside and outside. The thing about Claire, St. Claire, as convicts called her, uh, was that she went to every federal penitentiary twice a year. And she had correspondence from people in all the joints. So she became a, a, a connecting point for everybody, all of us, those of us outside, people inside. Uh, so not only was she totally knowledgeable, but she was able to pull all these things together. And uh, I remember when she uh, chained herself to the doors of Parliament, you know, like in a demonstration out in the hill. She used to come through here, and, and I, I had her at the university all the time. And we, we worked pretty close together. But God, she'd leave, you know, and you'd feel like really inadequate, like you really hadn't done anything. What would you had been doing, you know? And like, so you got this great burst of energy from her all the time, you know? And this, come on, Bob, let's go. Like, uh, you know, I remember she got arrested uh, uh, because the post office claimed she was really, she used to reuse envelopes, just like scrawl over and put in new. They accused her of reusing stamps. And, uh, so uh, a bunch of, we had a prisoner's liaison group at the, at the university, student group, and uh, we used to go down to Collins Bay, and uh, lifers group and what have you down there. Uh, so they raised money for stamps. 
I think they raised like four hundred and some dollars to buy her stamps so she wouldn't get, over, get arrested. But so Claire was really central in, in, in developing the national scope of Prison Justice Day, both inside and outside. And then the screws, the, 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 the guards, there, the administration, they were helpful as well. So what they did was they took principal people from Odyssey, like Howie Brown, and they transferred them. So they sent Howie uh, to uh, uh, British Columbia Penitentiary. No, maybe they sent him east. They sent George Watson to British Columbia Penitentiary. Anyway, what they 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 sent key people uh, uh, to other joints who could then like uh, 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 share their knowledge of organization and what have you in these other venues. So prison prison justice day, I think, was the major initiative of, of prisoners' resistance in the nineteen seventies, and it really did it, it it really did pull in outside people, and that was their 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 desire, eh? What did their read you this? This is what the Odyssey group is about. Prison Justice Day, August 10th, 1979. For the end of senseless deaths in prison in support of human rights for prisoners to attain the right to, to meaningful work with fair wages, the right to useful education and training, the right to proper medical attention, the right to freedom of speech and religion, the right to free and adequate legal services, the right to independent review of all prison decision-making and conditions, the right to vote, the right to form a union, the right to adequate work and fire safety standards, the right to open visits and correspondence, the right to natural justice and due process. Those are the demands that Odyssey Group in their magazine presented as their position, what their group was about, what Prison Justice Day was about. And so what you, you had, and I, I really saw it as coming out of the 60s, uh, the, the wider initiatives that had occurred in the in, in outside community in terms of, I guess, a left politics, certainly a, a, a wider critical politics that wasn't just about prisons, but, but connected to the bigger picture itself and located prisons within the larger capitalist structures of control. Uh, and social uh, discipline. The time is presently 5.40. You've been listening to the prison radio show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. That was an interview with Robert Gauthier, a retired criminology professor at the University of Ottawa. Tomorrow is Prisoner's Justice Day, and you can find out more information about the history of Prison Justice Day by visiting prisonjustice.ca. As previously mentioned here on the Prison Radio Show, there is a national prison strike planned in the United States, August 21st to September 9th. We'd like to continue listing some of the demands drafted by the incarcerated people of Ohio. Prisoners demand an end to long-term solitary confinement. It is torturous and its effects are consequence and consequences are devastating. There are prisoners who have been in solitary confinement for five 10, 15, and even over 20 years. All prisoners should be provided an opportunity to pursue higher education and or a college degree. All prisoners should have the opportunity to have on-camera interviews with the media. The media have a right to know what is really going on inside prisons. The Ohio Department of Corrections should terminate its contract with Aramark, the privately owned Philadelphia-based company. 
due to its due to the latter's inability to meet the terms of its contract. In particular, the food has on occasion been found to be inadequate nutritionally and unsanitary. Maggots or fly larvae have been found in prisoners' food, and food has not been properly cooked. Food portions have been half their prescribed sizes or amounts. Too often, food has an offensive odor, and the same leftover food is being routinely served two or threat two times or three times per week provide proper mental health treatment better medical care reduce exorbitant commissary prices most prisoners only make nine to sixteen dollars per month nine to sixteen dollars per month correctional officers should be fired for physically abusing and attacking prisoners who are in handcuffs and wearing leg shackles there should be no retaliation against prisoners or their property for becoming a member of the Free Ohio Movement. This next piece is from 2015. It is a tribute to Steve, who died in prison in 2014. In the piece, Steve's friends talk about him and the situation he was facing when he died in prison. We wanted to do a tribute for our friend Steve, who died inside in um, December, January of this year, uh, 2015. And um, Steve was uh, a friend of ours for like four or five years. And he was really into fighting, all sorts of different kinds of fighting, like MMA and boxing and other things too. And um, he was really awesome. and. We really miss him, so we wanted to do a little tribute about him for the prison radio show. Yes, and with August 10th coming up, I, I knew Steve for four or five years, and uh, I've done 31 years in the prisons myself. And it was a shame Steve had the kind of personality, and he'd been bullied all his life, and uh, that bullying seemed to continue on through uh, unaccountable staff members and parole officers that uh, just basically drove the man to where he couldn't see any hope. and. Uh, he made a terrible mistake and went the wrong way, and uh, it happens to a lot of guys inside, and it's a shame. And uh, on August 10th, that's the way we stop and remember them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's all I really got to say. Thanks. Cool. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit more about Steve and <laughs> stuff that we remember about him. And I was just talking about how um, he's francophone, and when I first met him, he was like trying to learn English. Uh, really hard and he was picking it up so fast but would like still apologize to everyone for his terrible English all the time which was like so silly because he was so good at it and he would bring he would bring books that he was reading and he would bring the magazines that he was like really stoked to have gotten inside he would bring his magazines to the group to be like yes I finally got this one you know it's like the March issue and I know it's November but like I finally got my hands on it and he wanted to share them with like the other folks in the group so that it wasn't just like him benefiting from this magazine subscription yeah, and um, we sort of made a connection because I also enjoy fighting, and so we talked about that a lot. And I knew him mainly through letters and sometimes visits. And he even went so far as to wanting to like encourage me in my, in my fighting <laughs> capabilities as to give someone a book. So him on the outside giving them a book to bring to me on that outside. So him on the inside giving someone a book to bring to me on the outside. So I just think that's like a really huge indication of what his personality was like and sort of 
I don't know, and I think it's actually kind of rare to find anybody who wants to support or, you know, really encourage, like, a small female-bodied person to fight and to engage in, like, those types of things. And he was somebody who was really like, yeah, go for it, do it, you know, be somebody who has the ability to take care of yourself. That's a really important thing. And um, also with the French, like, I was trying to learn French, and he was always asking me how my French progress was going. He would write me letters half in English, half in French, and so... Like, just super, um, yeah, uh, aware and supportive of how other people are doing. And we also wanted to talk a little bit about the context right before he uh, killed himself, took his own, I don't know, killed himself. <laughs> or basically the way that I see it a lot is he was in a, like, the circumstances made it such that that was one of the only decisions that was available to him. Um, and it was, his father was really sick, and they kept on dangling this possibility of him going and being able to get his outings back so he could go and visit his father. And then shortly before he killed himself, he was told that he wouldn't get his visits back. So he was not going to be able to go and see his father or accompany his father while his father was dying. You know, he would never be able to see his dad before his dad died. So while it's bullying, there's also institutional bullying and thinking a lot about the institutional power that... <laughs> like how much power the institution has over people's lives mm -hmm. and how they can manipulate and fuck with people in such an intense way and that I don't know that's it's that's not just bullying that's that's the power that a society is founded on and is really really clear in prison mm -hmm. yeah the story that I was told from people was that um, they had like arbitrarily changed the policy inside so that in order to get family visits you had to go in front of the parole board which takes like six extra months to a year and they told everyone that this policy had changed on fucking Christmas Eve and so it was like you know Christmas is a fucking hard time to be inside and to give people that kind of terrible news like around that time of year is just I think it's so calculated and so meant to just like mess with people yeah so, I wonder if we have like a lighter way. I know, fuck prison so hard. And fuck prisons for taking our friends away from us and from taking these people away from us who actually do play really significant roles in lives that are on the outside as well. Mm -hmm. That was a piece from 2015 about Steve, who died in prison in 2014. This next piece is from a punk show that happened in 2016 to honor Prison Justice Day. In the piece, someone from the Termite Collective talks about how many prisoners had died inside at that point. The person goes on to talk about the history of prisons and how long people have been resisting the prison system, as well as the context of Prison Justice Day. I just got a statistic last Thursday when I went inside and somebody said that they, uh, so far to date, 65 prisoners have died inside federal institutions alone this year. Um, the average is about 50 a year in federal penitentiaries. What has been logged by others is about 200 prisoners um, a year in other places of confinement, penal confinement, um, which I didn't do the calculation, but that's a lot a week. Um, and of course there are people on the outside who are suffering the consequences of being incarcerated that we don't get numbers for and we don't know. Um, and although Prison Justice Day pretty much started 40 years ago, almost to the day, in Kingston, Millhaven Penitentiary, um, the fight 
against prisons started with the inception of prisons. And it did, uh, when the, they started using imprisonment as a form of, uh, of uh, punishment to replace torture and execution, um, people were dying. And they started having little tribunals and they had juries to determine the cause of death, common folk. And they would say, whoa, okay, this is a willful negligence. This is lack of care. This is homicide. And uh, of course, they didn't like it that much, and they would quash those verdicts. And they were huge demonstrations. So the de resistance wasn't only from folks who understand the prison system for what it is and tied to all kinds of racialized institutions of oppression, and, but also folks who got a glimmer of what goes on inside, who had no idea. So in a way, it really is necessary to talk about what goes on inside as much as we can. Prison Justice Day is an occasion we can do that um, because those who survive and don't die inside still live through those conditions that make it so horrendous for others to live in there. Um, what else did I want to say? Um, one of the things that's talked about a lot is the lack of accountability and more thorough inquiries and get people to do their job and then things will be okay. Um, well, that's not true. <laughs> because um, their jobs is to keep prisoners alive. And they've got things like suicide watches where they, it's basically a segregation cell with nothing in it, almost worse than segregation. Um, because you have no personal effects because they think you're going to kill yourself with whatever you've got around you. Um, and people coming in to check you out every 15 minutes. So that's the way they respond on being thorough and accountable to keep people inside. So it's very important for me anyway not to talk about uh, the conditions of prison only in the, in the respect of death and preventing death inside but making sure people live outside of prisons and so that we can abolish prisons. I don't think we could talk about it any other way. Um, I also wanted to talk about a little bit of the context, yeah, maybe a couple of things, but the context of Prison Justice Day specifically. Um, Eddie Nalen, when he was there in 1974 in, Mil in Millhaven, he was among prisoners who were transferred from Kingston. And Kingston was the penitentiary, our oldest penitentiary a year, 1835, which was asked to be uh, dismantled, by the way, by all kinds of folks in 19, like, about 10 years later, a call for abolition, by the way. Um, and there was Kingston riots, so they took everybody who they thought were organizing in Kingston and brought them all to Millhaven that wasn't built, hadn't been finished. And as the story goes, what I've been told by folks on inside who maybe were not in at the time, but did time with folks who had been there, was there were, you know, the prisoners were coming into Millhaven and there were two lines of guards and they were just beating them as they were walking into Millhaven. That's that context. The other thing is that folks in Millhaven had organized with folks outside and that was important for people on the outside to know what was going on inside because had that not happened, prison justice day would have been a, a lot more difficult for it to have been recognized. Um, so that community building, that bridging and that constant communication with folks on the ins inside is really imperative. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is, um, you know, when you talk about deaths inside, people say, well, of course, you know, they're all a bunch of crazy people inside and killing each other. And 
that kind of thing. And even in their own statistics, Correctional Services Canada owns statistics, the government's own statistics claim that less than 15% are in, in, um, intentional interpersonal killings. Um, so that leaves like 85% for other causes, or over 85% for other causes. Most of them they claim and they put down as suicide. Most of those are not willful self-killing, but a demand to be hurt, to do some damaging to yourself so somebody is listening to you. Hey, I, where's that fucking phone call? Where's that phone you promised me? What do you mean my visit? Fuck you, and dying in those circumstances. The other one is they call natural causes, and they won't talk about that much, they'll say natural causes. Well, the natural causes are things of dying from cancer, tuberculosis, not getting any kind of medical attention, having an autopsy that exposes a liver that's this big, and nobody has ever diagnosed anything, not being able to get any kind of medical care. And people living their lives till the you know, till their end of days inside prison because they need to be protected from society. So those are the natural causes that we hear about. Um, and if we look at folks who die in the custody of cops, we're talking about dangerousness, over 85% is homicide or accidental. They cause the death. So when we think about, I know I don't have to convince y'all. Like I know this is a crowd I don't need to, to convince. But um, anyway, just some, things that maybe you could spread around because these things are kind of important. Um, anyway, have a good show. That's it for me. <laughs> <laughs> someone from the Termite Collective, a group that raises awareness about the prison systems through workshops, plays, and criminal cabarets. This piece was recorded at a punk show for Prison Justice Day that happened in August of 2016. And the little excerpt right before that was a little uh, excerpt promoting Prisoner's Justice Day by, by uh, prisoner uh, Peter Collins. Um, check out past episodes of Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio Show. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next Prison Radio Show will air on Friday, August 24th at 11 a.m. And we will be featuring an interview with Yusuf Fakiri, whose brother, Solomon Fakiri, um, was killed in prison. If you have any questions on anything that you have heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you are in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write us at the Prison Radio Show or simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A 2B3.
Thank you for tuning in to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90 FM. My name is Jean and... My name is Yasmin and we've been your hosts for today's show. Please stay tuned. There, 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 is, there is this thing. Do you realize what is... What is, what is what there is this thing. Do you realize... Consciousness is affected. There, 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 is, this, there is this thing on... There is this thing going on. Do you realize our consciousness is affected? There is this thing going on. What is called the news brought to you live. live, live.